Hello, everyone, and welcome to this next installment of Our Street Meeting House's podcast, where we talk about untold stories in Quaker history that you may not have heard about in school or in any other sort of uh, history medium that we feel are very significant, especially to uh, social justice movements, both of today and throughout all of American history. Today, I am joined by uh, Scott Larson, who is a professor at University of uh, Michigan, Michigan, right, correct? Okay, cool. I want to make sure I got that correct. (laughs) Um, uh, And he is a professor of history. And we will be talking today specifically about a very unique individual in Quaker history by the name of the Public Universal Friend. Uh, First, uh, I would like to give some time to Scott to introduce himself. Go right ahead. Thanks so much, Dennis, and thanks for inviting me to be part of the podcast. I am Scott Larson. Um, I have a PhD in American culture from George Washington University, and I teach in the American culture department at the University of Michigan. There, I teach courses in early American cultural history, courses in religion and sexuality, and also courses in transgender history. Awesome, wonderful. I guess to jump right in, uh, this individual by the name of the Public Universal Friend is a very, very interesting one because they kind of represent what I feel to be one of the earliest examples, at least in American history, of gender identities that a lot of people who are not able to study these types of things may consider very new and recent ideas when it goes to show that no matter what context it is, it's in, these types of gender identities have always really existed throughout history. And so just kind of give some um, background information on the Public Universal Friend First off, I would like to say that, uh, and this is actually going to be a topic that will come up in our discussion later on as as it is a part of uh, an article that Scott Larson wrote, that Public Universal Friend was uh, born assigned female at birth, if we're using modern terms, to help uh, create a better understanding for our modern audience, and was given the name Jemima Wilkinson. They died of an, quote unquote, died of an intense fever in the year 1776, only to be supposedly reborn as a now genderless messenger of God by the name of the Public Universal Friend. Uh, Scott, if you would like to say a little bit more about this event of uh, seemingly divine intervention, go right ahead. It's always hard to know where to start with the Public Universal Friend because one of the things that is the sort of overarching part of this story is a story of radical religious experience. And this is something that is maybe easy to think from a modern perspective, that this was just something that people regularly claimed or believed in early America, but in 1776, saying that you had died and were resurrected as a genderless spirit inhabited by the spirit of God to give a message to people in the world was regarded as, um, I guess in a kind sense, an outsider point of view. This was quite not a lot. Quite a lot. that was considered um, generally typical, but it also was something that appealed to a, a surprising number of people. Over 200 people um, ended up not just following the Public Universal Friend, but actually moving with the Public Universal Friend to a place that is now upstate New York. Um, they uprooted their lives, their families, and it's it's always complicated when we're talking about religious belief to know sort of what people quote unquote really believed or how exactly they saw this person or this experience. But it is definitely the case that a lot of people 
went to see the friend speak. The friend became internationally famous, um, is written about in newspapers in London and in the, the, the colonies um, that then became United, the states of the United States, places like Philadelphia. Um, people came to see the friend speak for a variety of reasons. Some partly traveling preachers, especially ones with remarkable stories were entertainment, were potentially sources. Yeah, I mean, just to just people would read about the friend in the newspaper about how the friend was dressed in this Mm. combination of clothes. Um, Some of these stories in the newspaper, as a historian, I wanna say some of these stories are really far-fetched. Some of the (laughs) stories would claim that the friend, you know, harnessed men to pull their carriage, which I doubt actually (laughs) historically happened. Um, But people wanted to show up and see the friend. And I think one of the things that people today share with people in the 1770s, 1790s, and 1800s is a fascination with uh, this story that's really remarkable. Absolutely. Really outside of everyday experience, but also kind of opening up a possibility to seeing something in the world that points beyond the existing experiences of the world, whether that's in a religious Mm -hmm. sense, whether that's in a sense of gender or a sense of kind of performance that is something remarkable to see. Absolutely. Yeah. There were a few written accounts from various publications that I found on the Public Universal Friend who refer to to them as their former name. And most of the time in these accounts, they would often talk about how uh, they wore their hair down like men and spoke in this masculine tone when they were preaching, yet still refer to them using she, her pronouns, but also talked about how some of their followers uh, would either use uh, he, him pronouns or just would only call them strictly the friend uh, as opposed to using singular they pronouns. So very, very blurred lines of, of, of gender going on there. And uh, there, was one, uh, there was one account that stuck out to me purely because it had this quote from one of the friend's followers that uh, when asked about uh, Jemima Wilkinson said that there was no such person as Jemima Wilkinson, end quote. Um, so I find that uh, very, very interesting because it has a lot of correlation between um, our modern uh, ideas of um, when it comes to dead names for gender uh, gender non-conforming people, that, that is the phrase used uh, for those unaware, the phrase used for a uh, person of a transgender identity's uh, former name if they choose to uh, abandon that for a new one because it is representative of who they formerly were and want to move past it uh, sp- strictly for reasons, uh, for comfortability reasons and such. So it's very interesting to see that we are seeing you know, it may not be for the exact same reasons or, or caused by the same exact things that we see today, but it's interesting to see these correlations between all of it. Yeah, and I think that one of the things we see in the story of the friend, again, that suggests that, you know, people today may share more with people of 250 years ago than we like to admit in terms of not quite knowing how to talk about gender, being fascinated by gender difference, wanting to know what is really underneath a person's clothes, trying to decipher um, a voice that sounds unfamiliar 
and um, trying to debate like how do you use names and pronouns when they don't accord with how a person is being in the world at this moment. So how do you refer to a person's past? Mm-hmm. Now with the friend, it is also about a really remarkable religious claim that this person is, first of all, not even a person anymore, but a (laughs) spirit inhabiting a tabernacle of flesh that has been left behind by the dead Jemima Wilkinson is now only um, the the spirit of uh, of God sent to to humans. Mm -hmm. And that is certainly something different than most forms of trans, non-binary, gender non-conforming identity. Um, I just wanna say that there's a lot of variety in trans and gender non-conforming experience, but it is not as typical that people claim that they have died and been resurrected. Absolutely. But, (laughs) but, But there's still this sense, I think that's really important for us to understand that the friend is making a claim that after death, this spirit is outside of gender. And so it's not just that the case that the friend is making a religious claim that therefore has nothing to do with gender. The friend is making a religious claim that is deeply involved with gender and actually has a suggestion about the nature of the afterlife within this sort of realm of belief and practice that the soul Mm -hmm. and the spirit are outside of gender beyond gender. And it suggests Mm -hmm. in its drawing in this from a biblical passage, um, Galatians 3.28, insisting that after death, the worldly categories that divide people into categories like master and slave, Jew and Greek, and also male and female are no longer things that exist after death. Um, in this case, it's it's in heaven or in, the, in this, you know, sort of Christian afterlife. But mm-hmm. this suggests a practice of sort of, um, and, and we would call this theologically a proleptic practice, a practice of mm-hmm. living in the present, a future state. But saying that mm-hmm. that future state does not have this kind of gender binary. Mm-hmm. And also that the, that gender binary is not something eternal or spiritual, but it is located in the world and in the history of the world. Mm-hmm. Now, in certain ways, it is interpreting that biblical passage in a sense that you might hear in a classroom that gender is a social construct. Mm-hmm. And that exactly. is one of the suggestions that's going on in the way that the friend and the friend's followers are engaged with gender. So. Again, I, I think I keep coming back to this this sense that there is maybe more in common with us and the people who are going to see the friend than we would automatically think of. No, I think it's good that you're uh, going back to to that sentiment pretty often because I feel like that's kind of what I was expecting the general theme of of this installment to be. Because you know, as I was you know uh, researching uh, this individual, I I I too saw all those different connections and such, and. Another interesting thing. Another interesting thing too is that um, even despite these connections, the causation for the public universal friend to embrace a fully 
non-conforming gender identity is not really of the same type of circumstances that we see in most gender non-conforming people today, whether it be gender dysphoria or a, a feeling of just general isolation by, by social constructs. Um, this is a fully spiritual and religious uh, 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 type of situation. And, you know, maybe some people nowadays might have the same uh, situation, but it's not really something you hear that often because most of the time you don't really find uh say a, a non-binary person and they becoming this televangelist instead you see most of the time gender non-conforming people who are in uh specifically strictly religious households end up being condemned by their religious families of course there are religious families that are accepting of their children and kind of use their uh religion to express their love and such but when it comes to i feel like more often than not i would say unfortunately more often than not is a case where um there is at least a little bit of um misunderstanding between uh, fa uh family members and so i feel like uh i feel like this could be a, a pretty good transition into one of the biggest themes of your uh, of your article that we talked about which by the way uh, i used in a project like two semesters ago um, I was talking about just gender non-conforming controversies in American history and and the influences of that on the people themselves. And I, uh, when we when we booked this interview, I was like, oh, Scott Larson, the name sounds familiar. And then I went back to that project. I saw the article. I was like, oh, okay, awesome, <laughs> cool, perfect. I awesome. Um, so the article to me was very very fascinating because I feel like it brings a great point of how in uh, a historical study do you approach this type of thing? Because you want to always, in any historical study, you always want to be sure to avoid anachronisms or, or avoid, um, I, 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 I feel like that's probably just the right term in general. Um, but for those who are not familiar with the term, it is basically uh, using modern terminologies or modern or, or basing past situations off your own modern ideals instead of strictly focusing in on just the past. So how do you feel? Uh, feel free to just express some of the points that you make in the article this way. People can uh, can understand what we're talking about. Yeah, so I think there's a real challenge um, in thinking about transgender history before the emergence of the term transgender. And there's two challenges. One is um, the, the real history of this term is that the, the term itself, transgender, emerges in the, the 1990s, really into more common usage. But in the 20th century, conversations about terminology relating to people who change, like who come to have terminology for identifying themselves in ways that are different in, in gender terms, different than the, the genders that they are assigned when they're born. Mm -hmm. And while that terminology is relatively short, there's very long history of people engaging in what could be called transing practices, practices of crossing, mm -hmm. gender boundaries, identifying in varied or multiple ways, engaging in gender nonconformity or um, in non-binary ways. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that often gets assumed when you say, well, this, that's anachronistic to apply the term transgender. And I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. And in my article, I don't argue that the friend is transgender. Mm -hmm. I do argue that the friend is part of transgender history. Mm -hmm. And 
I think one of the things that gets assumed when people say, well, this is presentism or this is anachronism is that people who are gender nonconforming or gender variation or sexual minorities or sexual nonconformity simply didn't exist in the past. And that mm -hmm. is untrue. We have a broad array of evidence um, around the friend, but also other people um, that people did engage in gender and sexual nonconformity, but also that people in the past talked about it. They debated mm -hmm. it. They tried to figure out how gender was working and where and if it mattered. And the other thing is that one of the conversations that's going on as the friend is claiming to be a resurrected genderless spirit is really a panic in early colonial America, but also in London and um, areas around the Atlantic about how gender distinctions were going to be destroyed forever. Um, one of the themes I hit in my transgender history class is that there is a regular fear that suddenly gender doesn't mean what it, quote, has always meant, that gender is going away, that gender is under attack, that men and women aren't going to exist anymore because of gender's <laughs> change. And that happened in early America around a series of things. One, um, is a history of religious transformation where people like Quakers, not exclusively, but Quakers and some evangelical people are arguing that men and women are spiritually equal. That, um, and, and this is something that prompts a lot of anti-Quaker sentiment, some of which is pornographically offensive about how Quakers, you know, because Quakers don't have the spiritual hierarchy of men over women, that Quaker marriages aren't valid. Quakers having sex with other Quakers is essentially like same-sex sexuality because the, because same-sex sexuality is seen as like, if you are having sex with, between people who are equal, that is homosexuality. And they're like, what's next? Quakers are just going to be having sex with animals. There's a lot of talk about- Similar to the slippery slopes we see today. Yeah, Quakers are involved in bestiality. And the reason they say that this is happening is because Quakers, and, and I want to say not all Quakers all agreed that spiritual equality is, is a principle. There were definitely, there's a variety of Quaker theologies and beliefs in the 1700s today, but the principle of spiritual equality was something that was seen as an assault on gender. And that assault on gender was coming from Quakers, from evangelical Christians, from people who were making the argument that God speaks directly to individual people without distinction. And so one of the things I wanna push here is that the history we've told about the way in which Christianity broadly or evangelical Christianity specifically is always opposed to gender difference, opposed to gender equality, opposed to gender transformation or opposed to trans and gender is simply not the case. There's a much richer relationship where Christianity was seen as a cause of the destruction of gender differences. Mm -hmm. 
but also enlightenment politics. Um, the idea that people would participate in representative government raised a question of how women participated in representative government and whether women's engagement in politics, whether women's education, whether women's ownership of property was making women not women anymore. Also so craft comes to mind uh, as, as we're talking about this, yeah. Continue. Yes. I just wanted to mention her. Yeah, so exactly, Mary Wollstonecraft. And Mary Wollstonecraft is accused of being unsexed, of taking right, yeah. women's womanhood from them. So some of the arguments we hear against uh, Mary Wollstonecraft will be repeated with um, women's suffrage movements um, in the 1840s, in the 1920s, in the 1960s and 70s. The arguments we hear today about how trans people and feminists are destroying gender are very old arguments and we, I, we've heard them a lot. Um, so I don't know if that makes you feel better or worse, but I <laughs> will say it makes me as a historian feel like I have a lot of company in the past with people who wrestled with trying to understand gender in new ways. We are not the first people doing this. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like that's a, a great explanation, um, especially for those uh, that may be listening and aren't as familiar with, you know, historiography and such and, and, and uh, the, the general means of, of studying these types of things. Um, when it comes to feeling better or worse about it, uh, I, I definitely have a better understanding. Um, but of course, you know, it shows that uh, even though the main theme of this is that these types of identities have existed for so, so long, same have the arguments, like you said. And, and it's, it's, it's unfortunate to see. It's unfortunate to see. But unfortunately, that is kind of the reality of many people. Uh, you know, like, like you said, there is plenty of people back then who saw these types of things as the destruction of gender and the constructs that they knew were suddenly toppling down. We see the exact same thing today. Uh, and, and, you know, it, people, people take a lot of stock in this because they, they have the sense of stability from it, whereas they don't understand that in order to, in order for everyone to have stability, this type of thing needs to be accepted as a, as a construct that should be, you know, either reformed or dismantled in some sort of way. This way, those who have been oppressed can actually feel comfortable within the society. And so, while, while those are mainly, while we see more of that in, in, in later history, post-public universal friend or even beforehand, that does not seem to be the case with the public universal friend. And I feel like you do bring up a good point about how Christianity being blamed for these types of things can be used in the example of the public universal friend because Christianity had been the root of this uh, divine ungendering of, of the public universal friend. Yeah, one of the things that's complicated about the case of the friend is um, the way that the friend is engaged in genderlessness, um, being an embodied spirit that is neither male nor female, was about expressing and enacting, probably enacting more than expressing, mm -hmm. um, a divine presence. Mm -hmm. And so one of the questions that often gets asked about the friend is, well, you know, like what, what did, how did they really identify personally? And right, I will yeah. just say they didn't identify as a person. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and, but, but I will say people at the time 
also looked for sort of what are the causes of this? Like what, mm. and, and um, you know, what has caused this person to um, dress in a combination of men and women's clothing to mm-hmm. embark on a career of being a, a, a public <laughs> itinerant minister to um, really engage in uh, some very dramatic uh, forms of both preaching and community leadership. It's hard to tell which accounts are thoroughly true, but it is the case that the friend's house became a place that people regularly visited, especially Europeans and travelers from France love to go on a trip to the United States. And they were like, what are the things we need to see in the United States? We need to go to Philadelphia and see some prisons. We need to go to uh, New York State and see the public universal friend. We definitely have to visit Ohio and Kentucky. Like there was an itinerary that was undertaken by a lot of international travelers, a lot of them French travelers. And they were both writing for an audience of people who wanted an account of the, the, you know, wild things they saw in North America with these Americans on their frontier. So certainly many of these are embellished, but it's also the case that this was a settlement that had great food, that had a robust communal spiritual life, that also had controversy, which we know because there is significant legal records of Mm -hmm. uh, deeds, people in the community suing each other and fighting with each other, Mm -hmm. um, which is, uh, again, if we're talking about uh, sort of the the things that happened in the past that have resonances in the present, people (laughs) living together is always a challenge. Um, Exactly. But but I will say um, that even though people in the past and in the present are really often focused on the friend's internal sense of self, Mm -hmm. that is not something we have a lot of access to, but I would also argue that it's not terribly useful. And Mm -hmm. part of that is pushing against the idea that the ways we understand gender, gender identity and terms like transgender or non-binary and also groupings of identities like LGBTQIA mm-hmm. are also historically specific in our moment and they address a complex but also limited sets of ways we can think about gender and or sexuality and the ways in which they are or aren't part of each other. <laughs> and so we often are very focused on understanding transgender as primarily a set of identities and Mm -hmm. are prepared to discount the performances of transing if we don't believe that they have a foundation in personal identity. Mm -hmm. But in the past, you started by talking about anachronism and avoiding presentism. We have to understand the ways that in the 18th century, a great deal of interest was not focused exactly on people's identity or Mm -hmm. how they understood themselves, but was very much focused on what they did and how they behaved in public, which Mm -hmm. is one of the reasons that the idea that voting or getting an education or owning property would make women not women anymore. They Mm -hmm. weren't really arguing that, that this was going to 
change some sort of uh, body morphology or, <laughs> I, I mean, some people did, mm-hmm. but in general, the sense was that women ceased to be women when they stopped doing woman things. Mm-hmm. And that list of woman things was very narrow. And yeah. one of the things we might think about is the way in which feminist movements stretching all the way back to the 18th century have been, argue, have been, and, and I'm going to be, be, you know, sort of um, maybe inflammatory here, <laughs> transgender movements, that they are movements that seek to redefine what woman is in ways that actually are routinely accused of destroying womanhood, destroying femininity, destroying the gender binary. And we have to take seriously the concerns that having women do different things and have different kinds of life is a fundamental transformation of genders and gender possibilities. Absolutely. No, I feel like that's a, that's a great point. It shows that um, just as how the social constructs that bring down LGBTQ plus people are actually fluid, so is the community in and of itself, both currently and in its past history. You know, it's 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 an ever changing, I guess, uh, flow of things that you can really look at from any type of perspective. And as we see here, you can look through this in a, in a Christian perspective. And as you said too, you can look at it through a feminist perspective. There's so many different perspectives that you can look in through. And I feel like, you know, as hard as it is, especially for a, a someone who is not an historian to to really, you know, study and kind of like look through all this, it, it's still important to at least have the idea in the back of your mind that you can look at this in any length, in any angle. Any angle is a valid angle. You know, sure, some may be a little bit more uh, out of left field than others, but you can you can try and 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 make a and make some kind of an argument out of really a lot of things. Um, there are a few questions that I, I, I emailed to you and, and we've definitely touched on um, the first two of them. The first one of them being, is there a benefit or detriment to using modern terminology for the public universal friend, which we definitely uh, addressed in talking about anachronisms and presentism and such. So I feel like we definitely uh, covered that one very well. And then the second one being, how does the public universal friend's identity and following align with Quaker beliefs? I, we touched on that a little bit, but if you wanna expand on that, uh, please feel, feel free to, to go right ahead. I will say, um, again, I want to reiterate that Quaker beliefs are are widespread, and I certainly don't want to Absolutely. represent all of them in yeah. this. Um, but I think I, I can confirm that by by saying my my current senior seminar paper is on uh, the many, many multitudes of schisms and ideologies involving the abolitionist movement uh, during the antebellum. So I can confirm ideolo- ideologies among Quakers are in no way, in no way uniform. Uh, some are, some are, but it's really all down to interpretation when it, when it comes to a lot of Quaker ideologies. So continue. I just wanted to mention that. Yeah. And so one of the, com- th- there's a few complicated things about the relationship between the public universal friend and Quakerism. First of all, uh, the terminology that the friend and the friends movements used come directly from, from Quaker practices in the 18th century. So the friend's name, friend, um, I think is is very reliably linked to the the name given to public friends um, rather than preacher or minister mm-hmm. um, in accordance with the idea that God speaks to individuals directly, that it is not mediated through special people in the world. 
And also that there's a sense of equality too. Sorry to interrupt you, but there there's that sense of equality among all of them. Like, um, what was the term they used? Social, uh, spiritual equality. That's what it was. There is that spiritual equality that shows that they are all simply friends in the eyes of God. Continue. I just wanted to. I, it came yeah. in my head, and I want to make sure I said it. <laughs> yeah. So, so the the some of the language and terminology, the the practices of how the community gathered around the public universal friend um, drew on Quaker practices, practices mm -hmm. of um, sitting in silence or mm -hmm. you know, waiting on the Lord. Um, and th this is also, a, I will say, a very distinctive manifestation of some of those practices because mm -hmm. also the friend did hold a leadership position. There was both, um, some principles of equality, but there was also in practice some forms of hierarchy. But it mm. was also the case that women in the community of the public universal friend held um, esteemed roles in the community, acted in ways of, of engaging in spiritual leadership, in community leadership, in holding some property and determining who, um, who how certain tasks or property was divided. So there was definitely a, a wider um, set of opportunities or places for women to enact their place in the community. And part of that comes from a principle of spiritual equality. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I think is really significant um, in thinking about the, the practice of Quaker living, I, I want to say, uh, amongst the, the society of the public universal friend is balancing all the principle of the, the divine light or the inner light where God speaks directly to individuals mm -hmm. with community practice, conversation about are, is what has been received in fact the divine light or is it to use another 18th century word, enthusiasm. Mm. Um, enthusiasm is was a term used in the 18th century to, to denote a range of sort of bad religious ideas, but also being sort of taken over by a kind of divine inspiration or inspiration from outside of the world. And so it mm. had a lot of valences for everything from um, suggestion of mental illness um, mm. or or what you know people might diagnose now as schizophrenia which mm -hmm. one of the things I now I'm interrupting myself but one of the most <laughs> frustrating okay. things I experience when I talk about the friend is not just people trying to identify and say oh the friend is you know this identity or is that identity but also the imputation or diagnosis of mental illness on religious figures in the past mm -hmm. happens almost every time i talk about the friend at a concert <laughs> people say oh well clearly that is this mental illness and all i want to say is refrain from uh diagnosing people of the past with mental illnesses mm -hmm. um there's a lot of really excellent work in disability studies that thinks about why that is a problem mm -hmm. but quaker people were often associated with mental illness and madness um this is also true of evangelical christians people like mm -hmm. uh, george whitfield goes around and preach and people um associate him with with mental illness and madness mm -hmm. um but 
this is one of the things that Quakers are very worried about and they are have a principle of bringing inspiration into a community conversation mm-hmm. and into conversation with scripture. Um, mm-hmm. And so when the friend is talking about, you know, you know, in Christ Jesus, there is no more male or female. Mm-hmm. This is a Quaker practice of connecting the inner light and this radical religious experience to confirmation from scriptural texts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, ha- it has that, 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 um, that feel to it where, where it is just a full em- em- embrace of, of spiritual practice and spirituality as a whole. Um, to move on to the, the last question, because I know we're um, not running out of time, but I, I know we're, we're, we, this, this discussion has been very, very thorough and I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, to move on to the, the last question, uh, I, I I would like to ask you. Um, we also we kind of touched on this a little bit, um, but I feel like this would be a very good question to end it on. Uh, is the friend important to not just Quaker history but LGBTQ plus history as a whole, and and why or why not? I think I I mean I I I will acknowledge that I have some bias here, thinking that the friend is important <laughs> to both um, Quaker history, queer. I have the bias too. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> histories um, in American history um, and the history of religion, really very broadly. Um, I think that there's a number of different ways that this can be interpreted. So I will say, you know, in a personal level, I never imagined that I would become a historian. I. <laughs> Um, I wanted to study queer theory and theology, and neither of those things are terribly historical in orientation. Yeah, it's true. Um, they're actually, to a certain extent, deeply ahistorical or anti-historical. Um, you're looking very literary for, too. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I read this case about the public universal friend um, in the work of. Um, Susan Juster and Catherine Breckis. And Mm. those were interpretations that I disagreed with, but Mm. they made me see a tremendously different world in terms of early American religious history than I ever thought existed. Mm. And I think that sometimes our imaginations about the past are very limited based on the stories we tell ourselves in the present. Absolutely. And the friend captures people's imaginations, captured people's imaginations in the 18th century <laughs> and in the present. And their attention too. History, we often think is something that is not about imagination, mm-hmm. but we have to be able to encounter worlds different from our own, ask questions about them, be curious about them, mm-hmm. be excited about a world that is different than what we already thought it was, because Absolutely. that is the basis of doing good historical work, of mm-hmm. doing good critical work in the present, and also of seeing a world where people who experience gender or sexuality or religion differently or mental uh, capacity or um, also like engaged in differences around sensation or processing, mm-hmm have a place in the world and have had a place in the world for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And it is really vital to see this kind of history much more richly because it challenges us 
to decenter what we think we know about the world mm -hmm. and ask us to broaden what might be possible. So that's a pretty aspirational piece, <laughs> but I will say on, on the very basic um, level, it shows us that people in early America were talking in very complex ways about Absolutely. gender, about sexuality, and about its relationship to religion. These things have a lot more overlap than we think they do. And the story of religion and gender and sexuality in America is a lot closer than we often think it is. Absolutely. No, I, I feel like ending it on that uh, aspirational and inspirational note, I, I think is good because I, even in the past two installments of this, this has kind of been uh, the general feel, I guess, that the, these untold stories have, have, uh, have, have stirred. You know, in our first installment, we talked about Benjamin Lay, a very fervent abolitionist and activist in many other regards. And then we talked about Alice Paul in our second installment, who, you know, massive women's rights figure, and now talking about the public universal friend, who, while not an activist in any sort of sense, definitely represents some sort of social change that we can absolutely um, associate with today. And uh, I feel like that's a, a great spot to leave it off there. Um, so thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Scott, for joining me today, as well as our listeners for tuning in. Uh, for more information about today's topic and resources, please visit historicasmh.org slash podcast. Art Street Meeting House is dedicated to preserving and maintaining its historic meeting house and burial grounds and expanding public understanding of the impact and continued relevance of Quakers. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to continue to support Art Street Meeting House, please consider making a financial gift at historicasmh.org slash donate. Join us next time as we explore untold stories in Quaker history. Thank you so much. Music